Electric bicycles are my jam. I'm turning into a nut for a good e-bike. It's easy to get around, we save gas not driving our car for short trips to the store, and I'm getting a little extra exercise. The folks at Velotrick are sponsoring a series of videos on my channel to show off some affordable e-bikes and help people get up to speed. It's easier than you think, and prices have never been more competitive. You can catch those videos on my YouTube channel, but if you're interested in shopping an e-bike, head over to velotrick.bike slash some gadget guy and look at their road bikes and fat tires. Again, V-E-L-O-T-R-I-C dot B-I-K-E slash some gadget guy. Velatric dot bike slash some gadget guy. If any of those bikes look good to you, you can save an additional $60 off an already low price by using the coupon code SOMEGADGET60, SOMEGADGET60 at checkout. Once again, Velatric dot bike slash some gadget guy and coupon code SOMEGADGET60. And I thank Velatric for being a sponsor on this show. Live, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, tech fans of all shapes and sorts and sizes and persuasions, welcome to another episode of the Monday Morning Tech Chat Show on the SGGQA Podcast Channel. I'm Juan Carlos Bagnell, aka Some Gadget Guy, the SGG of this horribly named podcast series, but we're 282 episodes in, so I feel like at this point you should know that the name of my podcast is Awful for SEO. Hey, all! <laughs> <laughs> We're really stoked for some Q&A this week, uh, especially as we've got some really interesting tech news to kind of chew through. I'm, I'm back to a proper news block and gadget block. We've got some leaks. We've got some rumors. We've got uh, some, some heady Supreme Court action that's going to be happening in the world of technology, and we uh, we want to make sure that we're we're getting uh, we're sort of staying up to date on what's going on, not just. Hey, I read a headline about a thing a month ago. We want to follow these stories as they continue to evolve. It's one of the main reasons why I like holding my podcast on a Monday. We can all get our week started here together. Uh, this is uh, this is excellent. <laughs> so I, I may be in the chat already spoiled who had the top uh, who had the the top post on the subreddit this week. Um, so there's a little bit of chatter going on with that, but we'll get to that. We'll get to that, uh, the subreddit plug in good time. We'll, 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 we'll let that kind of marinate just a little bit. Folks, uh, I hope everyone out there had a lovely weekend. Uh, we're still into weird calamity, high winds, lots of rain here in Southern California. I, I've never been more grateful to have thing crazy things like giant batteries that can like power, appliances and stuff um and uh with all the rain and the i just literally just got uh, while we were in the the lead up to the podcast another email there's like this emergency organization that puts out like emails in southern california and normally we get like heat advisory sun advisory you know like just real minimal kind of stuff we'll get a, like an email a week we've been getting multiple emails every day like high winds power outages flood warnings it's it's been it's been pretty crazy so uh, kind of a going along with that for the rest of the the country and and right now the rest of the world 
um, hopefully everyone out there, especially those of you tuning in and listening to the to the replay that you're 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 staying safe, that you've got all your provisions that you've stocked up. You've got like a battery to charge your phone or in case something goes down and that you're checking in on your family members to make sure that they're doing okay too. We've had crazy storms through the Midwest. We've had crazy storms out on the East Coast. We've had high winds and some scary flooding here on the West Coast. It's getting pretty heady out there. So hopefully, and again, I have every confidence that the crew of people that I'm talking to right now are doing a good job of not only taking care of themselves, but also taking care of their friends and family. So uh, I'm seeing an amazing crew here already in the chat. Cop of Cash, Grounded Tech. Sammy, what's up, Sammy? Uh, probably saw part of the title. I think that's why we have Sam. <laughs> Rico Man, Barry Johnson, Simon Says Hypno, Own Scon, Ron Guido, Tech Boy. What's up, Tech Boy? J-Man, uh, missing someone. Where are we? Al. Al Sabakli was in here too. So um, we've got a good group. Bray Gray and Hassam also th- uh, jumping in to say hey, hey, and, and giving me a little wave. Um, Sam, <laughs> bank holiday, so I'm not working. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. And Fat Produce, everyone say hey to my buddy Andrew. Uh, Andrew, uh, good, good to see you in the chat too. So uh, I want to do like a proper format for the show, which means We've got to chew through some housekeeping, but I haven't really done housekeeping in a while. So not only am I going to be out of shape, um, there's a lot of stuff um, that I've made over the last couple of weeks that we really haven't talked about. Last week, uh, I was really uh, fortunate to have um, not only my buddy TK Bay, uh, but also my, uh, my brother-in-arms from Pocket Now, uh, Adam Dowd. Uh, who's now uh, covering tech for Slash Gear? I might have that wrong. <laughs> um, but he, the those two gentlemen were on last week just to kind of recap CES, and then TK and I had another lovely uh, catch-up uh, podcast, best of our week, um, last Thursday. So there was there was a lot of really solid podcasting happening, but I've been sort of fluidly doing more pajama podcasts and casual podcasts and just kind of catching up with folks. So we're back on track. It's 9.05 in the a.m. I'm going to switch over now to do a little housekeeping, just some of the the, the top stories and links on uh, somegadgetguy.com. And I think I might have forgotten to pull one story here. There we go. Okay, so let me switch over into a screen share and Boom. A number one, I wrote up this editorial on somegadgetguide.com, losing consumer hearts and minds, watering down power user smartphones. Uh, This is sort of a yearly topic for me, not only just uh, what we, how we review phones is always critically important. Like, I can't say, you know, this phone is good without someone saying, but another phone is better. So how we review gadgets ends up becoming a part of the gadget review. Like I've got to talk about the media while I'm also talking about the phone. And this editorial is is sort of another link in a chain where we talk about sort of consumer trends and what's happening with the smartphone industry. And well, we're all really excited to see smartphones get demonstrably more powerful with better power management this year. At the same time, we're losing features on a lot of these kind of mainstream oriented phones. So what good is more power if we can't use that power in more places? Um, So uh, let me get that out of the way there. 
Uh, you can read that editorial. Um, it's it's not too long of a write-up, and it's it's kind of in keeping with Cranky Juan and soapboxing. Uh, next up, uh, <laughs> I said next up, and then I saw the title, and it kind of threw me. Next Doc Wireless proved me wrong about wireless desktop modes. Uh, the folks at Next Computers, they make the Next Doc and the Next Pad. They sent me over their new Next Doc Wireless to take on a test drive. It's a laptop dock. It's it's f- literally identical to the Next Doc 360, but includes wireless connectivity for DeX and for Moto Ready 4. Uh, then I did a, a roundup. So I got a lot of questions after I, uh, I posted my in-depth look at the Rocket Air uh, wireless, not wireless, the Rocket Air wearable displays. I'm becoming a really big fan of these glasses that you put on your face. They're not really augmented reality glasses. They're basically just big, um, (laughs) sorry, I just got this. Simon says hypno. Proved me wrong titles. Need a sad face in the thumbnail. I completely missed my opportunity to do, hold on, hold on, we're going to go back into this. I totally missed my opportunity to, oh, Excedrin headache. Oh, I was so wrong. Woe is me. No, I, it's not face to the heavens. It's not like a frustrated thing. It's just like an, oh, I was incorrect. Yeah, I totally missed that one. I'm real bad at making thumbnails. Um, so there you go. <laughs> someone, someone can definitely turn that into an alternate thumbnail for my uh, hilarious uh, Next Doc review. Uh, sorry, let me get back on track here. Uh, the best portable monitor for your face. So I've I've reviewed I, I I did sponsored videos. Excuse me, they weren't reviews. I did sponsored videos with the Enreal Air and the Rocket Air, and I got a bunch of comments. Like I got one guy who was really kind of pissy about my Rocket Air video. Like, oh well, this is sponsored, and you can't trust anything, and this guy's a shill, and blah 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 blah. If he really cared about wearable displays, it would be a comparison. And you're like, well, that's different than sort of a feature highlight and you know the sponsor of the video was pretty clear about all right cool but I did want to do a three-way shootout so I uh, I borrowed the TCL uh, from one Mr. TK Bay and I had the Rocket and the Enreal and now there's a three-way shootout um, on these new wearable monitors and they are crazy bleeding edge tech but I feel like they're getting to a point where now more people should be able to take them seriously as an actual practical consumer product, like especially seeing prices on these things fall. um, It's, it's pretty, uh, it's pretty fun stuff. Uh, I, I, the second you're on an airplane and you're enjoying big screen entertainment, uh, sitting as comfortably as you possibly can, um, it definitely uh, it definitely changes your perspective on like what wearable and mobile technology should resemble. Uh, moving right along, I just had a little short that I put out. TMNT Shredder's Revenge is now on Android. If you're uh, if you're a subscriber of the Netflix, now one of my favorite games of 2022 is now available for you to play on your mobile phone or tablet, and it's awesome. It is a phenomenal port of Shredder's Revenge, which includes online play. Uh, That was really, really cool. And then I just wanted to cover a couple quick uh, stories that we didn't talk about last week. Uh, My sponsored video of the Anchor 767 powerhouse battery. See, there's there's like I'm making a cringe face in this thumbnail. I, I figured out making a face for a thumbnail. So 
that that's a good thumbnail, I guess. Um, but the 767 powerhouse, um, this is a giant battery on wheels that can power appliances in your home. And I shared some thoughts on what it was like when we had a real blackout and we had to keep our fridge running overnight um, just on battery power. And lastly, I'm thinking that this is going to be my trend for 2023. I don't think I can keep doing every single product as a video, but I still want to review things like earbuds and adapters and uh, docks and cables and things like that. So those are increasingly going to be written posts on somegadgetguy.com. And I wanted to start off with something that's actually kind of a big deal. JBL Quantum True Wireless, the best wireless earbuds for the Steam Deck. Um, this is, uh, I got these from MediaTek. Uh, in fact, they're powered by MediaTek. Um, so they, uh, they sent these my way just to kind of take for a test drive. And then I wrote up my thoughts on what it was like using them. And then they have this little adapter that you can plug in. It's got its own little USB-C puck so that you can, uh, you can hook them up to just about anything with USB-C and get insanely low latency wireless audio. So if you're looking for true wireless earbuds and gaming is a priority, this might be a better all-rounder solution because it's Bluetooth to your phone and then USB-C to anything else that you want to hook them up with. So uh, let me get this out of the way. Oh, wait, no, I've got one more for housekeeping. This, was, this one went straight to the Patreon. Um, all the camera stuff goes to the Patreon. IQ11 camera thoughts, it's not a pro. So I didn't do a video camera deep dive, but I did share some thoughts on shooting with the IQ11, uh, checking out the camera sensors on the IQ11, sharing a number of photos and samples and talking about some of the video and production. And so uh, you can catch some, uh, you can catch those thoughts over on uh, patreon.com slash some gadget guy, where I'm trying to get back into the swing of things. It's one of those things I'm, I'm going to have to put out like sort of a Patreon uh, sort of a, a post just for the patrons to kind of chat about maybe some of the strategy moving forward. Like my heart really isn't in audio testing anymore. Um, if, if there's like a conversation that people want to have, but it's getting really old, kind of recording the same speaker samples and hearing just the marginal differences that we hear year over year over year especially on some of our nicer phones, like the speakers are pretty good. How many times have you been in the middle of a video review and then someone's just holding a phone up to the camera and there's like some random song playing and they're like, yeah, wow, boy, these speakers. And you're like, well, you can't compare that. There, there's, you can't hear what the differences are. It, it's, it's information in a total vacuum. And they're like, oh, but you, you didn't play the speakers or what about a different song for your speaker sample? And you're like, what useless information. And so I need to, I need to chat with patrons and just like, what, what do we do? Because it's not like I'm testing a bunch of headphone jacks anymore. Literally the only phone that it kind of made sense to do an audio review of last year were, were Sony phones. And I never did get my hands on the ROG, I guess gaming phones that still have headphone jacks and Sony's I, I can show you actual measurements and see if we've seen any improvements. And then I also talk about some of the downgrades 
But that's also just been a bummer. <laughs> you know, like, oh, they say high-res audio, but it doesn't really support high-res. It's sort of capped at CD quality. It can play high-res, but it puts out less than CD quality sound. I'm not sure what to do with that. It, it seems like a lot of effort and a lot of time to kind of shrug and go, sort of the same. Yeah, I guess the speakers are a little better. You can't hear it. <laughs> So, so Reziel, I mean, this, uh, this is kind of where I'm, I'm sort of stuck. It's, uh, I think we've reached the point where speakers aren't really improving that much every year. And it's fun when there is something practical that I can demonstrate. So what was it? It was the Poco and the Red Magic gaming phones. Those were kind of interesting because... The speakers got demonstrably more powerful, but if you tried to max out the speakers, then the audio quality wasn't as good. Like, the speakers could be overpowered, and the user had control of driving those speakers to a higher tune, a higher level. So, I ended up, I think I put those two together into one video talking about speaker performance. See, that's an interesting, to me, that's an interesting practical demonstration that you can hear differences with. Um, but beyond that, just like, I'm playing some techno song with the good bass, and you can hear the speakers are gooder. And, like, again, everyone asks me to show my work, but in the middle of some other random smartphone review, it's just like, oh, yeah, he said the speakers were good. I totally trust him. <laughs> like, but you, you didn't. You didn't really demonstrate anything. You just held the phone up to the camera and recorded a song. Anyway. Um, <laughs> oh, logistically, Nick's talking about the Anchor 767. It's not a real review unless you cause a blackout to then use the battery. <laughs> yeah, silly me. I didn't actually, you know, short out a bunch of breakers. I, I just waited for a blackout to hit my neighborhood. And thankfully, this time of year, I did not have to wait long. So it was pretty good. Um, Barry Johnson, I stopped reviewing phone speakers. I, I mean, again, it's 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 so funny to me. All right, brief tangent. It's nine seventeen. We're gonna get to the news block here very very shortly. Um, it's so funny to me. I did the next doc uh, wireless review, and one of the earliest comments that I got and, and it's, it's so funny. Cause like I got it on the video and then I, it might've been the same person commented something very similar on the Samsung decks subreddit, just like, Hey, note to future reviewers, maybe show what it's like to really use the product. And so if you see my next stock wireless video, I'm not sitting there reading off the specs or showing you how to do a wireless connection to a portable monitor. I feel, and please, you know, and, I, and I'll open this up for the chat. Please correct me if I'm wrong. If you were watching a Bluetooth earbud review, let's say El Jefe Reviews is reviewing the new Pixel Buds, right? Do you really care to see, like, the real-time setup process of pairing Bluetooth earbuds to a phone? Is that something that matters to you in a review unless maybe something is functionally broken with that process? 
I'll, I'll put the caveat on there. Like, let's say someone tries to pair Bluetooth earbuds to a phone and it doesn't work. Like I was showing, um, I was trying to work this into a video that we did at Slick Deals where the process of opening AirPods did not sync up with my iPhone SE. Okay, so maybe that would have been good information to deliver. But do you care to see that process actually happen? Because I'm talking about using a wireless display with a keyboard and a trackpad and all these other accessories and why I prefer using these products cabled. And I'm showing like all the things you can do with it. I didn't feel it was necessary to go, okay, well now you open up the lid. And once the screen has turned on, you'll see instructions on the screen on how to connect the keyboard to the Bluetooth radio. I'll read those instructions off to you on the display. You go into your Bluetooth settings and you look for next dock wireless keyboard. And then you push pair. And then the phone should, should initiate a Bluetooth pairing with the Bluetooth keyboard. Following the Bluetooth pairing with the keyboard, go into your Ready For settings, and there you should see an option for, for next, for next dock screen. And, and then you touch on that, and it should in, initiate a pairing with the next dock screen. So, I, 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 actually, I kind of just did it right there. Um, I should send that to the Samsung Dex <laughs> subreddit. There you go. There's your uh, initiation on how to use a wireless display. Um, it was just like, it was so irritating. I ended up muting the person on YouTube because it was just like, what? why? W what benefit does that have? I want to talk about what it's really like to use it. I want to spend two minutes in a 10-minute review going through the process of setting it up and pairing it. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm kind of, I, I'm, I've been talking to TK a lot about this kind of stuff where it's like, I, I gotta stop. I gotta stop doing the spoon feeding, the lowest common denominator. You just wanted to hear me talk about what the specs were. There is no entertainment value in that. I, I, like it's, it's, it's the tech equivalent of reading the phone book. I, I really need to stop because it's driving me crazy and it makes me mean and kind of bitter. Um, sorry, I'm I'm way off the chat here, so let me let me kind of gonna say uh, there we go. <laughs> From JGJ, I mean, phone speaker layouts matter. There are still cheap phones that only output mono. So so JGJ, that's fine. Um, but. This is also kind of running up against the realities of what it's like to be a content creator in tech. Um, I, I can put out videos about Redmi speakers and Poco speakers, and even on my Patreon, no one's watching them. So, JGJ, are you going to find me the 20,000 views to kind of warrant the amount of effort and time and work it takes to consistently compare those speakers. You're right, a bunch of people are out there buying mono speaker, mono speaker phones. Are those people watching videos about their phones or did they buy a $200 phone and go, yeah, it's a $200 phone. I don't need some Yahoo on YouTube telling me that my phone isn't as good or, or the speakers on my phone aren't as good as an $800 phone. So, while you're right, from a scientific perspective, it would be nice to know what those differences are. That content ultimately isn't entertaining. 
doesn't really confirm or or guide the purchasing decision and no one consumes that content. So what would be the value of producing that content except to make people feel worse about their $200 phones and people who don't buy $200 phones aren't going to engage with it. They aren't going to share it. They aren't going to support it. So you're right, <laughs> but that still doesn't help uh, contribute to that conversation about where should I be spending my time? Because I think we could all be having a lot more fun if I'm focusing my efforts on delivering video and content that I think helps empower users and talks about things that they can do with their phones or things that you might not have thought to do with your phones. That's, that's a more varied and a more dynamic kind of conversation rather than me taking the time to set up these speaker tests, you know, like the amount of time it takes to consistently record samples in the same conditions from the same distances with the same microphones mixed appropriately so that you can hear those differences in audio playback. I mean, they're some of my worst looking videos, but they're some of the most time and labor intensive to get all of those points fairly compared. So that's why the video ends up looking kind of garbage is because it's a lot of work to get the audio done right. Um, yeah, and Onscon. And again, it doesn't always translate. When you watch a speaker test on any device, the speaker in the video will sound like whatever you're playing it out of. And again, I'm assuming if you really care about speaker quality and comparative analysis that you're listening on something pretty good. But the person who's who owns that $200 mono speaker phone is listening on a $200 mono speaker phone. So, you know, it's great. Oh, and Tech Love and Mama popping in to say, hey, I also saw Jojo the Techie saying, hey, I saw a whole bunch of people saying, hey, but I was kind of in, in the flow on doing my housekeeping. Um, hold on. There, there was one other comment that I've already passed by. Do, do, do. Yeah, Michael Peppertech. If the manufacturer touts fast pairing, but it requires, oh, whoops, I lost it, but it requires setup through Bluetooth and their app taking longer than normal, but I think most people watching will know how to pair their stuff. And I feel like you comment on it when something now is out of the ordinary. Like, if fast pairing, when fast pairing was just coming to Android devices, you're like, oh, let me show you what that looks like. A lot of people can't experience it currently. Your next phone or your next pair of earbuds, it should look like this. Now that's really common. So you don't need me to spoon feed you what that looks like. I've been reviewing laptop docs for what, four years now? Maybe going almost five years now. I don't, I don't feel like I need to the instructions are on the screen and nothing changed. Like it wasn't different. It wasn't like the instructions said, stand on your left foot and balance the next dock in your right hand. And in, you know, recite this incantation. It was go into settings and pair. And I feel like most people can follow those instructions. Apparently, except for Samsung DeX aficionados, apparently people on Samsung DeX subreddits have issues conceptualizing what that looks like. Oh, it's like Bluetooth, but I don't know. It could be different. And you're like, I can't make a video for you. <laughs> I shouldn't say people on Samsung DeX. The Samsung DeX subreddit are actually some of the most advanced smartphone users on the planet. 
one person on the Samsung Deck subreddit can't figure out what a wireless display through Miracast looks like. Great. Great, 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 great. <laughs> doop, doop, doop. <laughs> Baseball super. Sounds like Juan won't be the next mono speaker phone guru. Well, I used to be the mono speaker phone guru, and then I walked away from that. And then I took an arrow to the knee. <laughs> All right, folks. So, um, yes, uh, all of the uh, the stories that we're going to be talking about this week, including everything that I just rambled through on housekeeping, will be available uh, on the show notes for this week's episode, somegadgetguy.com. Uh, yeah, it, it, it was kind of a, a lot of a lot of uh, self-reflection. What am I doing in the new year? How do we how do we talk about tech in a more fun way? And I need to open that up to a conversation on the Patreon. What what makes sense for kind of continuing? Because again, I, if I put it out there and I say, "Hey, do you guys want me to make these videos?" Everyone will say yes, and then no one will watch them. <laughs> and I have the data on what is actually consumed. Like both Patreon and YouTube tell me what is getting watched. So, you know, again, it's sort of an unreliable viewer or participant. Do you want me to talk about speakers? I'm sure everyone in here would say, yeah, let's do that. And then when I make those videos, is anyone going to watch them? Okay, well, I'm going to have to think about that. So, uh, moving into the uh, moving into the news block, um, <laughs> the news block is entirely brought to you from by Ars Technica. This podcast is not sponsored by Ars Technica, but the three stories that we're going to be talking about this week each had fantastic write ups, and so I'm going to keep my editorial editorializing of these stories to a minimum. <laughs> um, I, I might ramble about some of these things a little bit, but I genuinely want folks to not only read these articles, but these are three stories that I think we need to keep an eye on. Uh, we're talking about stories that have historical uh, components to them that will also set precedent for future issues in technology. And I think in in really funny ways, like these three each represent very critical turning points in how we utilize entertainment content and online distribution. Um, oh, and also energy policy. Um, <laughs> DTNL hours Technica. <laughs> yeah. Hashtag some commie guy. I kind of, I kind of own it. I should have worn my bright red shirt today, not my sort of muted mauve. Uh, but I want to throw to a screen share here. This is the first story coming up, uh, written up by Ashley Bellinger over at Ars Technica. Google to SCOTUS, liability for promoting terrorist videos will ruin the internet. Supreme Court ruling could trigger devastating spillover effects, Google says. Uh, from the first paragraph, for years, YouTube has been accused of enabling terrorist recruitment. This allegedly happens when a user clicks on a terrorist video hosted on the platform, then spirals down a rabbit hole of extremist content automatically queued up next through YouTube's recommendation engine. In 2016, the family of no... I don't know how to pronounce that first name. Noemi? 
Noemi Gonzalez, who was killed in a 2015 Paris terrorist attack after extremists allegedly relied on YouTube for recruitment, sued YouTube owner Google, forcing courts to consider YouTube's alleged role in aiding and abetting terrorists. Google has been defending YouTube ever since. Then last year, the Supreme Court agreed to hear the case. Um, do, 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 right here. Now the Gonzalez family is hoping that the high court will agree that Section 230 protections designed to shield websites from liabilities for hosting third-party content should not be extended to also protect platforms' right to recommend harmful content. So, um, this, this is a very nuanced and a very delicate story to dig into. Ars Technica, the, the rest of this write-up, this is several pages long. Uh, Ms. Bellinger has written a tremendous sort of accounting of how we got to this point, how this case is going before the Supreme Court, and also what some of these problems are with Section 230. Section 230 is a part of the Communications Decency Act, which shields a platform from the content that is hosted on that platform. So Google has sort of this plausible deniability where they can say, we are not advocating for this content and we are not publishing this content, we're just hosting it. Um, if you want a better deep dive into the, the Communications Decency Act, I would also highly recommend checking out some of the older videos on Legal Eagle. Uh, also on Twitter, Legal Eagle DJ has some great one is a really good video of him just talking about like free speech, but another one is a really great interview where he's interviewing another lawyer who sort of focuses on these sort of free speech issues and how the Communications Decency Act is sort of necessary, but also flawed. I mean, like a lot of laws, you you go in there with the best of intentions for protecting a, a certain type of platform or publication or distribution, but then there are some unintended consequences. You, you never really grok what the problems are going to be until a piece of regulation or a law goes into effect. I have been a longtime advocate for reform of Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. Unfortunately, when we get to court cases like this before the Supreme Court, there are many people on the other side of the aisle who are advocating for removing Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, and I think that would do more harm than good. I believe a lot of these companies do deserve protections, uh, legal protections, saying they are not wholly responsible for what users of the platforms might post on their platforms. But at the same time, these companies have also been have, getting it both ways. So they can claim, we're not publishers, we're not, we're not advocates for this content, but we make money off of the engagement on this content, and we can also augment or put disclaimers on the content, kind of like a publisher would. And then we can also alter someone's feed to focus on certain pieces of content. So we're not a publisher, but we function almost exactly like a publisher. And I feel like you shouldn't be allowed to do both. If you're going to be a site hosting content and you're going to claim these protections, then you kind of need to firewall the publication and distribution of that content from parts of your company that also make money off of that content and can alter the feed of someone viewing the content. You shouldn't be allowed to do both. 
And that's where we run into major issues with how we've structured social media in general, but also specifically algorithmically sorted content. Uh, the, the, the biggest offenders, in my opinion, being YouTube and Facebook, significantly altering the flow of information to a person based on what they know will keep them engaged with their platform the longest. If you're changing that feed, then I believe you're a publisher. I believe you have now uh, you, you've now ceded your protections to Section 230. If you want to give me a perfectly sort of uh, antiseptic, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I don't know. If you want to give me a completely unmanipulated chronological view of the content that I say I want to watch, then I think that you should have all of the protections of Section 230. You're not changing up what I see based on your profitability. Complicated stuff, but please read through all, <laughs> please read through all three of these articles that I'm going to be talking about. Um, what the Supreme Court decides is going to fundamentally alter, change, enforce how we distribute content online. And I don't have a ton of faith in this current Supreme Court to come to a measured conclusion on the arguments facing moderation of social media and content cultivation in social media. It's, it's messy. And I think it's going to get a lot messier with the current slate of judges and politicians that are going to be jumping at, at this particular court case. Um, <laughs> again, someone give me another some commie guy. Uh, hold on. Didn't Google already fight this with Elsa gate? Um, no, uh, sort of the, uh, the fallout from Elsa gate, Elsa gate was like, people that would algorithmically create these really bizarre and kind of unsettling videos, but based on popular characters and IP like Elsa from Frozen, Spider-Man was always in one of them. Um, and then just put in this really very unsettling and sometimes disturbing content, but aiming at kids. Really the main fallout from that just sort of forked a lot of YouTube's revenue generating machine so that if you make a video for kids, it goes under completely different criteria and you're probably not going to get it monetized. It was, it, it all basically stayed kind of in house. It didn't fundamentally change the law perspective, the, the, the government and, and the legal perspective of what, uh, section 230 represented. A lot of people brought up Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, but getting the Supreme Court involved here could mean significant changes to Section 230, repealing of Section 230, or some other type of additional um, regulatory action. Elsa Gate didn't really bring that. Uh, Google made most of those changes in-house to the YouTube platform. It wasn't an outside legal entity. Uh, forcing that kind of change. <clears throat> hey folks, are you getting bored of the current collection of tech and geek commentary on the internet? Is the discussion of new electronics feeling a bit stale? Do you want to find some fresh voices to add to your subscription queue? Check out the community on rglowingrectangles on Reddit. 
This subreddit was built to help new voices in the tech community find more audience, and we need your support. Sharing, commenting, and those precious, tasty upvotes. Reddit can radically help a content creator expand their reach. Do you know a producer who deserves more attention? Do you just want to find fun new stuff? Head on over to reddit.com slash r slash glowing rectangles and share or browse to your heart's content. Once again, reddit.com slash r slash glowing rectangles and let's build something cool together. Uh, hold on, Michael Puppertech. I'm not sure I completely understand your point. It's like a storefront putting adult books out of main view, restricted to particular users to reduce access. This also means lessening the risk of upsetting passers-by. Um, I feel like that is in keeping with some of this conversation. It's someone posts something objectionable to YouTube. So, so we get into trouble when we try to use metaphors, because in your metaphor, it's like someone owns a bookstore and someone else wants to put graphic images in the storefront of that bookstore. You see, like, we get into trouble when we try to talk about these things with some, some other kind of analogy. So Google owns a, Google owns a building. And in that building, you can see artwork from all these different artists. Excuse me. See, already, like, I've got to, I've got to, like, reconceptualize three times while I'm talking about this. So, <laughs> other people host art in this building, and then Google will rearrange the art every single time a new person walks into the studio. And so, the, so someone goes into the studio, and they want to see, you know, like, really dark uh, Edvard Munch. Uh, impressionist paintings. And so now the entire gallery reformats. So it's all this really dark and, and, and sort of unsettling artwork. And then someone else walks into the building and other things pop up. Google is, is <laughs> this, this metaphor is falling apart with every single layer that we put onto it. Uh, again, this is why a, a certain amount of tech literacy needs to be uh, uh, extended. We need to be able to talk about Section 230, just as Section 230. And, and this is exactly why, like, I have so little faith in our politicians, because they kind of need everything to be sort of summed up in a boomer analogy or a boomer metaphor. Well, it's sort of like a newspaper. <laughs> and you're like, oh, my God, this is so not like a newspaper. <laughs> yes, I mean, see, but this is what I'm talking about. Google, Michael Pepper Tech says, yes, Google is the store, but trying to claim they don't have control or they're not responsible for the view access. And this is where we run into trouble is because they can reformat their store based on every single customer. But then they also try to claim that they're not really a store, that they're more like a library. And you're like, that's not that's not how any of this works. That They, they absolutely need some other type of regulatory wedge. And that that's where this stuff gets messy is because every single politician that's gunning for some kind of headline or is grandstanding for their own constituents is going to is going to mess this up. And they're not really going to look at the, the long lasting effects of online discourse and conversations and social media. And we're going to get 
reactionary policy that addresses something that already happened and won't do a good job of setting us up for what sort of the next phase of this media might resemble. Moving on to story two. Um, again, this is one that I think is a duh, water is wet. I, I don't need to spend a ton of time on this and I'm not a climate scientist, but I'm, I'm pointing this out specifically because I think ours has done a pretty good job of setting up um, setting up the story and then linking to another uh, science paper, a journal uh, publish uh, journal published paper. Uh, we're, we're probably all not too shocked. Uh, this is written up from John, I believe it's Timmer. John Timmer over at Ars Technica, despite public stance, internal Exxon climate analysis were very accurate. Exxon scientists accurately projected things its executives didn't want to hear. From the first couple paragraphs, currently, the major oil companies appear to have settled on an awkward compromise with the reality of climate change. They generally acknowledge that their product is helping drive it, but plan to continue to produce as much of that product as they can. But that reflects a major change for these companies, which up until recently were funding think tanks that minimized the risks of climate change and, in many cases, directly denying the validity of the science. In the case of ExxonMobil, that includes denying its own science. Thanks to documents obtained by the press, we now know that Exxon sponsored its own climate researchers who did internal research, collaborated with academic scientists, and came to roughly the same conclusions about carbon dioxide that the rest of the scientific community had, and executives were made aware of it. So this is, again, we, we keep kind of discovering this and rediscovering this, and we, we, we've done it with so many other industries like this, like smoking, right? If you're my age or younger, you know smoking's bad for you. It's been sort of expressed and it's been sort of tested and we, we understand this, but generations of people have had to go through carefully targeted misinformation campaigns that were driven by the companies that produced these products. And then it's like you kind of almost have to wait for those generations to pass before you get any kind of effective change in policy with newer generations coming up to say, yeah, but that was all crap. <laughs> those were lies. And then it's very, it's very inconsistent how we tackle those kinds of, uh, uh, it's very inconsistent how we tackle the policy that helps correct for the bad information that was spread beforehand. We get to something like oil companies and climate change. And I, I, I point to this because there are so many industries. I work in tech commentary, you know, like a, a not insignificant portion of my family household revenue comes from talking about cool tech toys to play with and all the fun things that you can do. And it's, it's a really fun job. I am increasingly saddled with this liberal guilt of, well, but how do we fix problems like right to repair and keeping these products out of landfills longer and all of the rare earth elements that go into them and the toxic waste that we create that goes into landfills and like, I want to leave the planet a little bit better for my daughter. And, and all of these things kind of weigh on you I'm having fun, but I'm sort of anxious about all of this waste. And to a point, I really feel like California has a good idea that is not being maximized. 
I don't believe a company should be able to profit off of an industry that pollutes if they can't factor in the full life cycle of their product. So in California, you know, we spend more in taxes when we buy a TV because a part of what we pay for is also the appropriate waste disposal of that TV at end of life. And everyone's like, oh, well, you know, California and taxes and blah, 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 blah. And I really think that idea should go farther. <laughs> I think the end of life for any product should be factored into the cost of making that product. Oil companies get to profit excessively from government sweetheart subsidizing. Um, you know, again, gas is still cheaper in the United States than anywhere else in the world. It's not that our gas is magic. <laughs> It's that we still give all of these subsidies and all of these tax breaks to oil companies. But at the same time, they're not really directly responsible for any significant part of the cleanup. So they get to profit. They get all of the socialism of subsidizing their product and profiting off of their product. They get all of that, but then they're not responsible for the actual capitalist side of what happens when the industry is in turmoil or what happens when something goes wrong with one of their products, taxpayers are on the, on, the, on the hook for cleaning up after these companies. And that, to me, needs to be one of the major course corrections. You know, if we've seen that they've historically had this data correct and that their products were contributing to these types of changing weather phenomena, like I'm in Southern California with weeks of rain, We've never, I have lived in California for over a decade and I've never seen anything like this before. I've never lived through this type of consistent monsoon weather in Southern California. Um, if, if the company can't finish the cycle with their product, then I don't think that company should be allowed to profit from their product. And if that makes gas substantially more expensive, that is a market correction that we've been due for a really long time. Gas is cheap, but the cleanup and the health impacts, you know, the, the, the amount of damage it does to the environment, how it harms communities, the weather, the air, asthma, lung cancer, all of those things kind of need to be accounted for in the use of that product. So that's my soapboxing. <laughs> Yeah, Michael Peppertech, clean up, clean up, everybody do your share, except the company responsible for the damage. <laughs> McCorcoran, again, absolutely. We, we socialize the losses and privatize the profits, and that's how American big business loves it. Um, Dave Burns, I personally love having asthma. It's my God-given right as an American to have asthma and pay for its care. Again, not having any type of socialized medicine. It's the American dream of paying insanely high medical bills to treat chronic illnesses. Um, it's actually because it's kind of funny. Like Dave on the, uh, the Discord and I had kind of a, we're both cranky, pissy, sort of left-leaning individuals just ranting about like the, politici the, the politicizing of gas stoves. Where does this come from? We're actually kind of concerned. Like, we have a gas stove, and it's on our list of things like, we got to get rid of this at some point. We really do. It's not really great for the air quality in your home. We run, um, like, little fan air purifiers in every room. 
Um, it's not good for you. But now that some science has come out showing like, hey, this isn't good for you, and we're now taking regulatory steps, like new homes in California, I don't believe can be built with gas infrastructure. We're trying to get away from this, this type of gas infrastructure. And that's going to be slow going. That's going to take a while in Southern California. But it's like, that comes out and you're like, oh, but those commie, liberal, socialist, pinko fascists are trying to get rid of your gas stoves. <laughs> like, but it's bad for you. And induction cooking is really not, I want a nice induction stovetop. I just like, <sighs> don't wear a mask. Someone said it was a good idea to take care of yourself. That's what those liberals want you to do is not die from preventable diseases. How dare you? Politics. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, I just coughed like right into the microphone. That was awesome podcasting. So wrapping up the news block here while we've got 10 minutes left. Um, the, the third of our trio of stories from Ars Technica. I, I'm bringing this one up because I am not a big... I, I currently am not into uh, tabletop role-playing games. I, I used to be really into this type of gaming when I was younger. Like, especially in high school and early college. Like, I, I, it, Actually, early college is where I really veered into uh, video gaming and video game RPGs and things like that. But, you know, like I had a pretty regular game. I was never much a fantasy guy. So when uh, we were looking at, at tabletop gaming, very, you know, while most of my friends were super into like Magic the Gathering and Dungeons and Dragons, I was super into Vampire the Masquerade. Um, I loved, you know, playing more modern day fantasy, dark, underworldy kinds of storylines. And I just wasn't as interested as, you know, like, oh, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a dwarf with an axe and I go into a tavern and I'm in character as a dwarf. And I... It just, you know, like you get those little things that kind of spark in your brain and D&D &D never really sparked in my brain. But as, as someone who was a fan of sort of the idea of, of role playing in, in that, I just never really got into D&D. &D. It has been absolutely stunning to see how a game that encourages collaborative storytelling in small communities of players has grown into this sort of media empire for online content. And now the company responsible for sort of shepherding that game is looking to squash all of the goodwill of that open uh, storytelling arrangement. So um, here, let me, let me get into this article. I, I've given that way more preamble than I should have. Um, <laughs> sorry, I just saw that from Michael Peppertech. I'm not reading that comment. I'm going to get into the story here. Uh, this one written up by Kyle Orland at Ars Technica. RPG fans irate as D&D tries to shut its open game license. Leaked document seeks to revoke two decades of royalty-free rules sharing. <clears throat> well, I'm going to take a quick sip of coffee here, but I'm not going to slurp on the camera. One second. <laughs> a 
Okay. Uh, from, from the article, for decades now, Wizards of the Coast has made the core framework of its popular Dungeons & Dragons RPG, D&D, widely available to other game makers as part of an expansive royalty-free open gaming license, an OGL. But a planned update to the license imposes more restrictive terms and royalties of up to 25% for some revenue from large companies, according to an early leaked copy. The reported changes have some in the tabletop gaming community up in arms, with one organized group already calling the unreleased license update a betrayal and objectionable, if not downright illegal. And I am not going to be able to do as good a job of summing up everything that has gone on in this story. This Ars Technica write-up does such a good job of breaking down the history of how we got to here the rise of um, like critical role, I think is, is one of the, the most often pointed to um, successes of this creating media um, based on this content, based on this IP and really popularizing the, the notion of kind of taking a, a homebrew game and, you know, kind of striking out with some friends and doing some adventure storytelling and how the reaction to that recently has been, to try and rein in how open that um, that licensing licensing agreement is, and if other people are generating media off of this IP, and they can look at how much money they 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 get to look at how much money is being generated, and then Wizards of the Coast can say, well, then this is our cut of what you've created out of this. Um, and I think one of the things that's concerning to a lot of people is that some of these rules from, from the leaked memo, again, none of this has actually been put into place yet, but this is a community of really passionate um, fans of, of this type of gaming and storytelling. One of the things that I think is also concerning is some of these rules seem like they could be retroactively punitive. So you start playing this game or you start like uh, kind of building on top of these rule sets and you can kind of come out with your own third party. Again, I keep wanting to use tech words like you can make your own plugin to D&D and then you can sell off this kind of side kit based on your own experiences with the game. And there are so many uh, like Patreon um, pages full of, of content for D&D that kind of aids in how people play and manage their campaigns. And at some point, Wizards of the Coast, in this leaked document, can say, we would like to go back through your financials on this, and we're going to assess the value of what you've created, and you owe us royalties based on previous media that you've generated. And that, I think, is, again, it's sort of an insidious hook so let's say someone flies under the radar for a while and they're, they're doing decently well and they're successful with making this media and contributing to the overall lore of D&D and they're making their own stuff so that you can run your own home, home campaign, your own side quests, whatever it is, that later Wizards of the Coast can kind of look back at that media and say, oh, but now you owe us money based on what you made um, previously on that kind of, on that kind of content. And... And we've been running into a number of these, again, I want to use a word like reactionary, but these almost kind of punitive changes to a terms of service or a licensing agreement. Um, 
I'm bringing up this one specifically because D&D, it seems like the stakes would be really low, right? It's a game where you tell wacky fantasy stories and everyone pretends to be different creatures and you go on an adventure. The stakes to that don't seem like they would be very high. And the community is broad, but it's not, you know, the numbers pale in comparison to like, you know, just sort of an average video game audience, right? But this kind of helps encapsulate what I feel is sort of a modern rug pull. Uh, We've built up community, we've built up goodwill, we have uh, embraced all of these people and all of their wacky fantasies and their fun games and their, their crazy stories. And now we're changing our relationship with them and now you, you're just going to have to deal with the new costs associated with being a fan of this media. And this, to me, feels a lot like um, recently there was an issue with the video editing software Filmora, where they keep redefining their relationship with their customers. They had sort of like a, a version of Filmora that you bought it once and it was a lifetime license. And then they changed what lifetime license meant. And then they changed what future updates for the software meant. And then they, so it's all of these little legal changes in the terms of service that drastically reduced a Filmora user's ability to update their software, get new features, and and pay for different kinds of upgrades. And what they were trying to do is eventually make it painful enough that you would just sign up and pay for a new version of Filmora that was more just kind of like a subscription service that no one really wants to engage with anymore. It makes me anxious. I'm such a big fan of using software like DaVinci Resolve. I paid for DaVinci Resolve once, and I'm now on my fourth major update for DaVinci Resolve, no, a third, third major update um, with DaVinci Resolve since paying for it, and I've not spent another nickel. And at some point, I have to believe that with future updates and iterations to that software, I'll need some other different kind of license. (laughs) You know, at some point, something will change. And that has kind of been the way. I had a PowerDirector license. I I got like, I paid for the top tier. You get everything, watermark removed. You're, you're, You're on the ultimate version of this license. And then two versions into PowerDirector, they changed to a subscription model. And they just can't find the record of me having that old license that I should still technically have access to. So please give all three of these stories, please give them a read. But when we look at the future of media, entertainment, IP, copyright, the longevity of these contracts, the legalities of this are increasingly going to matter to things that we used to take for granted. An open gaming license for D&D used to mean really broad accessibility to D&D content and your ability to make things on top of that content. And at any time, the company that owns that IP can change the rules. And you don't have much say in that. You kind of have to go along for the ride. I just recently had to click through a whole new agreement on YouTube My relationship with YouTube changed the beginning of this year. What I'm allowed to do, how my videos are monetized, what the new rules are for demonetizing. All of these things are now different. Now, for some reason, we we really grok this, in a sense, with social media. 
old kinds of entertainment are now looking at that change of business model online and are trying to adopt strategies that look a lot like the more fluid agreements that we're constantly having to re-agree to every single time there's a minor change in the terms of service. D&D wants a bigger cut of that pie. And that's concerning. Again, I, I feel like that relationship had sustainability and was very long, long thinking, like generationally people are fans of role-playing and they pass that kind of love on to their kids and to future generations. And they bring people into those kinds of communities with play. And this feels like it's going to slam the brakes on that kind of progress. It's probably not illegal. <laughs> they, they have every right to enforce their IP rules and licensing agreements however they see fit. But it's just an unseemly business practice when you build up goodwill with one agreement and then you change it so that you can make more money off of that agreement. So again, I have not done a very good job of, of sort of distilling or boiling down what the longevity of this situation really looks like. The article on Ars Technica is going to do a better job of kind of chronologically breaking down this is where we were, this is what might happen, and this is where we could go with what goes on. But I think we need to keep an eye on this. If more media follows strategies like these, we're constantly going to have to look over our shoulders for what our relationship with a company might look like. Like, I'm doing this with this piece of software today, I might not be able to do that legally tomorrow. Um, and that sounds like, oh, you know, uh, you know, sort of a slippery slope, but we've already seen it. Like, we're seeing that on the regular. That's what happened to me with PowerDirector. KineMaster on Android, now it's $120 a year. Filmora has changed their all of their legal disclosure of licensing agreements to try and extract more money out of subscription services. All of these things are fluid. So we've got to follow the flow of how fluid they are. Um, Kenox, again, this, this is, at least I would say Nintendo is pretty, uh, uh, pretty consistent. Um, we should also watch what Nintendo does with copyright and IP. They are pretty serious about any of their gameplay being streamed. This, that's sort of the flip side. A company like Nintendo has been very litigious. <laughs> company, like, if you want to be, like, a Nintendo streamer, um, they have been aggressive in protecting their IP and locking down who has access and how companies profit from that. Um, there, there was like a whole, what, what did we call that? I forget. It was like a partnership, a partner program. You, some, someone in the YouTube land, I was on one for a while, but basically they act like a middleman. So YouTube pays this company and then the company pays the content creator. And the whole idea is that it's supposed to be that company acting as a middleman can um, like facilitate more work and get you better branding and sponsorship deals. And basically all they did for me was take money out of my ad rates. Like they never did anything for me. And it took a long time to separate myself from that company. It took almost a year. Um, and they also had a really scummy practice. It took me an extra year because I missed a window where I was able to leave 
the because it's like an affiliate, but it's not an affiliate. I can't remember what it's called. MCN. Thank you. Brian Glaze. Nailed it. Um, so Nintendo had their own MCN where if you wanted to be a Nintendo streamer, you had to sign up and be an under their MCN. And I think that I want to say the payout was something ridiculous, like 75, 25, where the content creator got the 25 and Nintendo kept 75% of what was generated off of their IP. And I don't think that stuck around. Um, I think that that failed unsurprisingly, but, but again, those, those to me are kind of like the bookends. What was going on with D&D was open and broad and exciting and vibrant. And lots of people were contributing and, and people were making money off of their efforts. And, and it was all just sort of this lovely kind of uh, hodgepodge. And where Nintendo is vice grip, highly litigious, you know, shoot it down, uh, take all of the money, copyright uh, strikes, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, um, it's pretty crazy. Oh, El Jefe Reviews, subscribed at Tier 1. Um, he's got a comment here. Why isn't this showing up? I should be able to... Oh, I think my... I might not be seeing all of the Twitch comments um, on my restream. That's a bummer. Uh, it, I won't be able to put it up on the screen here, but El Jefe Reviews says, MCNs are the worst. The only good they do is for foreign creators whose countries don't allow Google to pay them. MCN can help facilitate for them, but facilitate payments for them, but that's it. Um, oh, and he shared it on the YouTube there. There we go. <laughs> um, so uh, let me get that out of the way there. Uh, yeah, I, I was with an MCN for a couple of years, not really paying attention and then realized like, wait a minute, they've done nothing for me. Uh, and it took a while to kind of gnaw my arm off out of that coyote trap. But everyone say, hey, Jeff. And I hope you're feeling better because I, 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 unfortunately, I wasn't online at all yesterday. But I don't know that you streamed. Um, so I hope everything's okay and that you're feeling all right and that you're taking care of yourself and getting some good rest. I'm going to take another drink of water here because my voice is already uh, super fuzzy. So let me mute this here real quick. You can watch me drink um, because we've also got to celebrate someone who's in the chat right now for the subreddit. So that's kind of a big deal. Just a quick interjection here, folks. I love highlighting good work and talented people, producers and writers who deserve more attention. So here's a quick word from someone making cool stuff on the Internet. And I hope you check out what they have to offer. Juan, thank you for the honor of having me on your podcast to kind of let everybody know that I do what's called Engineer Reacts. I react to smartphones, and you can find these reactions at www.youtube.com forward slash C forward slash Barry Johnson. I do about one to two video reactions per week, all on smartphone tech. Also, in addition to this, I'm actually going to start posting on Easy Computer Solutions channel as well as he just has so much product that he tapped me on the shoulder and said, hey, I need a little bit of help over there as well. So again, Juan, I appreciate it and hope you have a great rest of the podcast. <sighs> okay. Every podcast has a subreddit. My podcast, no exception. Uh, but my, my subreddit is based on trying to help promote content that we feel deserves more attention. <clears throat> it is not the Juan Bagnell subreddit, though I'm regularly featured on my own subreddit. 
Uh, if you go to reddit.com slash r slash glowing rectangles, we want this to be a little incubator of good content. We've been talking about all the issues with algorithmic sorting of social media and uh, publishers and content and section 230s and all this stuff. If you'd like Facebook and YouTube out of your way, Glowing Rectangles can be a resource to help you contribute and share and promote content that you enjoy. Um, my wife uh, is, is, again, like taking baby steps away from using Twitter. She only goes through the web app, and apparently the web app has stopped allowing her to sort chronologically. So she gets like two options that are basically kind of the same for you. And so she goes in and she's like, oh, but this isn't, this isn't my feed. This is just content sort of sorted al algorithmically. And I don't want to see that. If you want to get away from those, that, that type of resorting and reorganizing of your content, you got to make an effort. You got to go somewhere else. And people have been contributing and supplying some really great articles and videos and stories and even some photos uh, glowing rectangles on Reddit, reddit.com slash r slash glowing rectangles. And number one, with a bullet, the top upvoted posted story on glowing rectangles this week comes by way of one Mr. Barry Johnson, who I believe is in the chat right now. The Vivo X90 Pro Plus killed entry-level mirrorless cameras, a Barry Johnson editorial. So I need everyone give major props and major shout outs to Barry Johnson. This was a great video. He's doing some camera samples. He's doing some testing. He has, I love his approach. I love his style. It's just smooth jazz video delivery. And uh, again, this is a phone that I am super anxious to see if it'll get an international release. The Vivo X series have been some of my favorite camera performers and the X90 Pro Plus looks like just an absolute monster. So, so here, I'll put this out there to the crowd. This is a video that is, uh, is getting some good traffic on YouTube. I feel should have a whole extra zero at the end of its view count by the end of this week. One way that you could help popularize that would be sharing this, this video on social media, making an effort to post it on Twitter and Facebook and Mastodon and all these other places and giving it some upvotes on glowing rectangles. There are 45 people watching this stream right now, and this is the top post on glowing rectangles by 15 votes, by 15 upvotes. So three times more people could help promote and celebrate really good work that is not being shoved front and center via the YouTube algorithm, especially from a North American creator. A weird thing happens when someone in the United States talks about a phone like a Vivo is YouTube goes, oh, but you're based in America and America's don't really search for Vivos and Oppos and Xiaomi's. So our videos get wedged into this little holding pattern. If we happen to find some broad international audience organically, if we bring people to watch the video outside of YouTube, then YouTube gives us a little bit more of a nudge. But if that's not immediately popular to a United States audience when we're based in the United States, then YouTube sits on our videos. 
This is what algorithms do. Someone in New York doesn't care about Vivos. They want to buy iPhones. So we're not going to push this to all of your subscribers as aggressively. Well, we can change that. And we should change that. If you want to change that, one opportunity to engage is to bring audience from other platforms, from another website or from another social media service like Facebook or Instagram or Reddit or Twitter or Mastodon or Flickr or anywhere else that you can draw someone to check out this content. So uh, let me get this out of the way here. Following up on this, the number two and number three posts were from some punchable face guy who likes to wear hats talking about watering down power user phones and wireless desktop modes. The number four spot, Apple accused of systemic violations of user privacy in a new class action lawsuit. This was actually on the list to be one of our topics this week, but I kind of just didn't want to talk about Apple. (laughs) Apple violating user privacy and being in a second class action lawsuit over kind of lying about in their marketing about the user data that people that they collect on their own users. It's just tired. And I'm tired of fighting iPhone owners like, at some point, I kind of want to say, like, if you just want to own an iPhone, just own an iPhone, but don't act like you're more secure because literally the company that is selling you this idea of security is tracking the most information on your usage and behavior. Oh, but that's good because I like it when Apple does it. Well, then shut up. <laughs> then why are you concerned about any other company doing the same thing? You're you're a hypocrite. <laughs> So that was the number four story. And the number five story, can you film YouTube videos using the LG Wing in 2023 from one Mr. Easy Computer Solutions? We got Eric still, still carrying the torch for LG, um, which which it feels good. I, I, I enjoy that. Hold on one second. One more drink of water here. Dave Burns. Juan says, I kind of don't want to talk about Apple. Liz, what a coward. (laughs) Oh, wow. Liz just cut me to the quick. That's good, Dave. That's good. I don't know. Leave it in the chat. Do we want to talk about uh, data protection policy and class action lawsuits for Apple? We've got the gadget block coming up. Technically, that's an iPhone story. So if if you guys want to talk about it, we can. We have a whole 45 minutes ahead of us here. So um, uh, reddit.com slash r slash glowing, glowing rectangles. We had a great week on the subreddit. There were stories about older phones. There were stories about newer phones. Uh, Luis Rossman has a great editorial that was shared. It was cross posted from another subreddit, uh, how Samsung is killing repair. There's a whole legal fight brewing with Samsung that could drastically reduce um, a third-party repair shop's ability to get parts. So if a screen looks like it's built for a Samsung phone, we'll have customs enforcers who are just going to throw those parts away. That's what Samsung is trying to enact in a very Apple-like way. How, how can they make sure you can't repair your phone? You should just buy a new phone. What if you want to spend a little less on a replacement screen? Oh, you can't do it. We have, a, a again, they're using copyright and licensing to say you shouldn't be able to repair 
your phone. I mean, Dave actually kind of ran into some of this. Uh, he was looking at fixing his OnePlus 9. Uh, he, he broke his OnePlus 9 screen. And after a point, the screen really doesn't get cheaper as the phone gets older. A OnePlus 9 screen is still an expensive screen, and the repairs that they were quoting him were kind of silly. Like, oh, well, we'll also need to replace your main board and, like, a battery and all this other stuff. And you're like, well, yeah, but now the repair is so expensive, he was able to buy a whole new OnePlus 9 Pro for less than what they were, would have charged him to repair and replace his screen. So we don't really have right to repair if these companies can kind of force higher prices on repairs and parts and pieces and service. Yeah, what they want is the consumer to go, no, it's not worth it. I'm just going to throw away this old phone and just go buy a new phone because it's cheaper to buy the new phone. And that's what we really have to push back against is we've got to keep these things out of landfills, but it doesn't make any sense to the consumer to spend $500 replacing the back glass on an iPhone when, you know, that $500 could just go towards getting a new iPhone. And it's, it's pretty gross. Yeah, Este Bandito. Imagine trying to get a windshield for your car, but the windshield shop can't give it to you. That's how anti-repair practices sound. Or brake pads. Or no, you should, uh, you should only get Tesla brake pads. Or, you know, again, charging you so much for new brake rotors that you think, you know, maybe instead of replacing the brakes on this car, I should just get a whole new car. <laughs> It's so, so bad. All right. Um, Reddit.com slash r slash glowing rectangles. Go check it out. Share, contribute, participate. We've got 56 people watching right now. And you, you literally, if all of you went and upvoted one story, it would probably be the, the big story of next week. So uh, we want to get into the gadget block here. I, I I suppose we have to talk about it, just like I really didn't care to talk much about um, Apple, um, which no one really seemed to care if we talked about Apple privacy or anything like that. I just want you all to know that uh, because you didn't want to talk about Apple, that means you're all complicit in just being shills for Apple marketing. Um, I guess I am too, just through pure exhaustion, is Apple will market privacy and security and it just works. And then no one ever calls them out on their terrible business practices. And the Wall Street Journal just makes puff pieces with Craig Federici uh, talking about how amazing his hair is and how you should just buy your mom an iPhone. And really what we should be doing is saying, hey, this is a terrible business practice. And now Apple is fleecing their own customers, making them spend more on somewhat mediocre phones and at the same time uh, taking all their user data to profit from it. Um, you know, that's, that's kind of something we would say is objectionable. So anyway, um, <laughs> I love it. I love it so much. <laughs> Let me get this out of the way here. Oh, dude. Yeah. So again, this sucks. El Jefe reviews. The brakes on my new car are specific for California since we recently made laws about copper pollution. Parts alone will run my pockets for $1,400 before the cost of labor. And I used to do my own brake jobs. I will not do brake jobs on newer cars. There's way too much computery stuff going on. You know, even just trying to do a good brake bleed is such a pain. But the thing is, 
again, like I was saying, uh, California has is like a new regulation that new homes can't be built with gas stoves. I feel California will drive this first. It's going to be way more expensive for Californians, and it really sucks for us. And then other companies are going to say, hey, we don't want to have to keep making multiple versions of brake pads for California and for the rest of the United States. What if we just switched our manufacturing over so that all of our brake pads were California compliant? And then that trickles through the rest of the country, and the rest of the country gets to benefit from us doing that regulatory practice first. And that's what sucks, is we could just say, like, it's better for air quality, it helps improve situations with pollution, why is this just a a California thing? And then the rest of the country is going to go, oh, but those liberals, they don't want copper particulate in the air for their kids to get emphysema. Oh, my God-given right as an American is to pollute the air for my kids. It's so frustrating, and and it sucks because we have to drag the rest of the country kicking and screaming into the 20th century, apparently. (sighs) It's so dumb. But yeah, Jeff, man, I feel you, because I know that you also really dig your new car. (laughs) So that sucks. All right, uh, Gadget Block. I suppose we have to talk about him because it's a leak and it's a rumor and my video will do better. My podcast will will get more viewers just because I put a Samsung word in, in the title of the video. Uh, we've got some leaks, just checking out. Uh, this is coming by way of winfuture.de. Samsung Galaxy S23, I can't speak German, so I can't even finish the rest of this. Flagship smartphone aus. Um, So this is the Galaxy S23, and if you were worried that Samsung would find some innovation and be a better competitor against Apple, uh, you don't need to be worried about that. If anything, Samsung is now going to just copy the iPhone even harder. Uh, It sucks because on the one hand, I'm positive on changes like just going to a flat front face. You know, going to a flat screen on phones, I actually prefer that. I would prefer fewer phones with curved edges, curved glass. But um, but they're, they're kind of taking some of their design elements from like a Galaxy A-series and then putting them through the most iPhone-like filter that they could find. Especially this profile view, this side view. If you showed this phone off in public, like... I think most people would assume you had a case on an iPhone. That's that's what we're we're kind of we're kind of dealing with here. So that's a bummer. I, I I keep hearing from like Samsung fans and like the hardcore Samsung knights that like, "Oh, well in 2024, they're going to they're going to go back to making like everything in the kitchen sink really competitive phones." And they're like, well, I don't see a trend in that direction. And if that's the case, then maybe the Galaxy S23 should be another hard pass year. Galaxy S22 was a bad phone. Galaxy S21 was not a great phone. Galaxy S23s look like they're going to be kind of mediocre offshoots of the same uh, same direction, of the same manufacturing that we've seen for the last couple of years. And this is really frustrating because... We've been seeing a consistent decline in consumer interest for premium Android that lines up, that correlates really well with the decline of interest in Samsung. 
if Samsung is going to say we're some kind of market leader and we're, we're we drive you know the the premium tier markets and we we deserve to be compared in the same breath against Apple and iPhones, they're not getting it done. We've seen sales fall off more than forty percent since the Galaxy S10. Who remembers at the beginning of twenty twenty two? All of the exciting headlines and the pre-orders for the Galaxy S22 are looking the best that we've ever seen. And this is one of the highest selling phones. And look, the Galaxy S22 Ultra, the Note 22 is driving all of these new sales. And look at these numbers are great. And, we're, and Samsung's on track to sell 300 million phones. And the Galaxy S is going to be 10% of that. They're going to sell over 30 million Galaxy S phones. Isn't this so exciting? None of those numbers bore out. At the end of 2022, a bunch of quiet analyst editorials went up. If you search for them, you'll find them pretty easily, but I don't remember seeing them really pushed in social media feeds. Samsung had to revise their estimate from 300 million phones in 2022. They dropped it to 270. At the end of the year, they really only hit about 260. So they couldn't even hit their revised estimate on, on how many phones total they were going to sell. And they were off by more than 10%. A factor of 40 million phones just didn't get shipped or sold from where they thought they were going to. If you were a Samsung shareholder, you would be very upset about that. On top of that, they had all of these lofty estimates for selling like 30 million Galaxy S, and I don't know that they broke 25. So, by comparison, the last, the, the, the main first year cycle of the iPhone SE 2 sold roughly 24 million phones all by itself. Just that iPhone SE 2. It's largely held up as being one of the least popular iPhones that people can buy. All of the Galaxy S phones in total are about the same as the, the that one-year cycle of the iPhone SE 2. Galaxy S22, Galaxy S22 Plus, Galaxy S22 Ultra, about 25 million. From what I can tell, analysts trying to decipher Samsung's marketing and uh, shareholder speak. That's not good. And it doesn't look like the S23 is going to do anything to kind of change that. It looks like yet another no headphone jack, no SD card slot. I'll be shocked if these go up to higher resolution displays. They're flat front screen, so they should be cheaper to manufacture. When you curve the glass on a phone, that increases the manufacturing costs. I don't think we're going to see any type of cost savings for the phone being built in a less expensive manufacturing process. Going to a flat front face, I think, is a benefit, but that should come with some rearrangement of costs for the phone being cheaper to produce. <laughs> I mean, that's what we saw with the iQ11. The iQ11 is the cheaper version. Where is my iQ11? So this is the iQ11. It's got a 1440p display, so, so uh, quad HD resolution at 144 hertz. This is like one of the best panels on a phone today. And this is less expensive than the iQ11 Pro in China, which has a more expensive manufacturing process, curving the glass, ultrasonic fingerprint sensor. 
This is a less expensive phone with a higher quality screen than most of these sort of starter premium $600-ish phones. I don't think we're going to see that from Samsung. I think Samsung is going to whittle back and, and give us a little bit less for the, for the purchase price that we're sort of accustomed to in that $800 range. I really hope I'm wrong. I would love to see the S23 launch at $600. I don't think that's likely. And also doesn't really help us in further devaluing the, the visibility of premium tier smartphones. Oh, Samsung couldn't get it done selling $800 phones. Now they're going to cheap out and sell us a $600 phone. And you all remember when everyone accused LG of making the V60 a mid-ranger because it only had a 1080p display. Ah. So uh, McCorker saying it's not going to have a flat display, just going to be less curved. But from what I see on these renders, it looks like a flat screen. So again, this is a rumor. This is a leak. We don't know if this is going to be accurate or not, but this looks like totally flat, flat front face to me. So we'll, we'll have to see if, uh, how that plays out. I, I, I genuinely don't know. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, oh, John Gal, let me read this here real quick. Android is losing premium tier market share like crazy. Google is basically panicking about this right now and has started doing marketing for Samsung with their own money. Uh, I don't know that Google's doing a ton to market Samsung directly, but what we saw was Google putting, what I want to say, over 2022, from, from the launch of the Pixel 6 Pro to the launch of the Pixel 7 Pro, I believe Google spent over a billion in marketing. At the same time, Samsung had reduced their marketing budget from... I want to say a, a previous year over year of around five billion to three billion. I probably have those numbers wrong, but there was a time where Samsung was the top marketing spender in the world. Shortly after the Note Seven fiasco, Samsung went from like five billion a year in marketing to ten billion to I think a peak of near fourteen billion a year in marketing, where they were outspending all of the collected brands of Procter and Gamble. And then wouldn't you know it, over the last two years they scaled that way back and they haven't been selling more phones. That's weird. It almost seems like Samsung following the Note 7 only hit the peaks that they did because they were buying their commentary. That's kind of odd, don't you think? When you're spending $14 billion a year on marketing and then you peak at the Galaxy S10 and the Galaxy Note 10, and then you stop spending $14 billion a year on marketing, and then you start selling far fewer phones. It's almost like buying a phone is not an exercise in meritocracy. It's not an exercise in getting the better built phone it's more, do I feel good about seeing the phone that I own on billboards? And when I see the phone I own on a lot of billboards, then it makes me feel good about the phone I have, and I'm more likely to buy that model of phone again. Huh. Funny that. Because <laughs> Google has, has been selling more phones than they have ever sold in the history of the company, in the history of the hardware uh, side of that company. And they've also been partnered with the NBA and there's, they're spending over a billion dollars a year in marketing. Huh. 
weird. <laughs> so bad. Ah. Sorry, I muted the mic to take a sip of coffee and then unmuted the mic just as I was swallowing the coffee. Um, McCorkran, did Android ever have much of the premium market share to begin with? They had a much higher chunk of it. Um, again, we've always known that the vast majority of Android consumers are shopping mid-range and lower. I think the average selling price of a Samsung phone over 2022 increased to something like $370, maybe $380. Um, and that was largely on the back of mid-rangers getting more 5G radios. So uh, th those those top sellers for them are still like their A was it the A14 and the A50s, but the A50 did not have a good year last year. Uh, halfway through the year, there was a stockpile of over 50 million phones that I don't know that Samsung really properly sold through. Um. Oh, John Gao, I have not been paying attention. If you look closer at the Samsung ad, some of them have Google Samsung co-branding at the end as opposed to Samsung only. Times Square 3D billboard ad is one of those examples. Because I know their partnership has been running pretty deep on things like the Pixel Watch. So Google has given every opportunity to Samsung in the Galaxy Watch. The Google Pixel Watch uses an Exynos chipset. They've been working really, really, really tight there. That actually kind of makes sense. And especially knowing that Tensor is fabbed from Samsung Foundries. I just hadn't paid attention to the ads to see if Google was really spending some of that cash on their own too. But I don't know, man. If you're tying your wagon to an iPhone clone of a Galaxy S23, I think we're all in rough shape for us being sort of phone fans. Like if you're really a, a tech enthusiast and not just a Samsung brand fan, I am not feeling super positive on Galaxy S for 2023. Anytime Samsung wants to come back to making a phone and advertising how it's different than an iPhone, I'm here for that conversation. You wanna show me a phone with upgradable storage because you can't get that on an iPhone? I'm here for it. You want to show me a phone with a headphone jack because you can't get that on an iPhone? I'm here for it. You want to show me a phone with stylus support because you can't get that on an iPhone? I'm here for it. You want to show me a phone with a desktop mode so that you can use it like its own separate computer because you can't get that on an iPhone and it's difficult to get that on an iPad? I'm here for it. But so long as you keep whittling back on tech features, you keep watering down your premium tier option in this space and you keep charging us iPhone comparable prices, the main recommendation is going to be why get an $800 Samsung if legitimately an $800 iPhone is a better buy, is a better phone, is a, is a more powerful, more performant. And that doesn't even get us into the other rumors. Like I know Ike, uh, Ike's Tech Talk, Ike has been very vocal about about this situation too, but the other rumor being that Samsung is going to make its own version of the SOC that goes into the Galaxy S23. So I have been critically excited about the Snapdragon 8 Gen 2. Um, that's I've got my iQ11 here. This came out at the end of 2022 as one of the first phones to get the Snapdragon 8 Gen 2. This is 
a hot rod SOC, much better power management. 2023 in terms of compute horsepower is going to be so much nicer than where we were at the beginning of 2020 uh, of 2022. The beginning of 2022, we definitely have some concerns on how those SOCs performed. Things got better over time and software management and kind of raining in thermals. Yes, those phones have, have aged better than I expected them to. We're not going to have those same concerns with the 8 Gen 2. That 8 Gen 2 is made by, T is fabbed by TSMC. Qualcomm makes the design of the chip and then gives it to TSMC and they do the fabrication of actually making the silicon that goes into the phone. Samsung might be releasing their own version of the 8 Gen 2 from their own foundry to go into their Galaxy phones. So there might not be an Exynos flavor of the S23 but you still will have a Samsung fabbed chip going into the S23. And this dovetails with another rumor that the S23 is gonna get a special overclocked version of the 8 Gen 2. So it's gonna be running at a higher clock speed, which should be more power draw and, more, and less battery life, which was already a major problem with the Galaxy S22. I have so little faith in Samsung right now <laughs> trying to manufacture these advanced parts at smaller fabrication scales with better power management. That is not something I think they are directly capable of. Samsung Foundry just lost a massive uh, a deal with AMD manufacturing smaller, smaller nodes for, for AMD chiplets. I don't know that they can get this job done. So if we're now dealing with a bunch of leaks and rumors all stock stacking on top of each other. We've seen the Galaxy S23 renders. I think this looks too much like an iPhone inside profile and looks like a cheap phone uh, compared to some of their other A-series devices. On top of that, we might get a Galaxy S23 with a Samsung-derived chip where Samsung has not been getting their power efficiency up to snuff, and other manufacturers have walked away from Samsung-derived parts, like AMD is not doing business with Samsung Foundry right now. And I find it highly unlikely that we're going to get all these things rolled up together in a phone with better in a phone that won't perform better and I doubt that the prices are going to fall to reflect all of those compromises on the Galaxy S23. My criticisms and my concerns over an S23 would evaporate if it sold at $599. Isn't it the only argument anyone ever makes for every other phone manufacturer? Oh, well, that OnePlus phone would have been better if it were only $400. That's what we should be saying about an S23 with all of those compromises. <laughs> but we're not going to say that. So yeah, it's pretty bad. <laughs> oh, and on top of that, yeah, I'm uh, McCorcoran saying I'm sure the 6A will eventually drop back down to 299 again. Yeah, it's not difficult finding some crazy good sales. Even not on a crazy good sale, imagine a Galaxy S23 opposite a Pixel 7. Because I guarantee you the S23 with a fab, a Samsung Fab HN2 will perform better in a Geekbench Sprint. 
but it won't have all of that crazy fun Google machine learning uh, hardware that makes the camera performance better, that makes the video processing better, that gives the, the tensor a couple of distinct advantages in very specific compute tasks. There's no way a Galaxy S23 is going to get a GN1 camera sensor, a 1 over 1.3 inch monster sensor. There's no way. <laughs> so the Pixel 7 at 599 is going to be a monster option, even though we know it's going to be a little less uh, compute powerful. It's going to be an incredible performer at the price it will be facing a Galaxy S23. It's why Samsung has failed so hard with their FE strategy of late is there's a Pixel 6 and a Pixel 7 out there that offer a better buy, a better performance per dollar, a better price to performance, whatever you want to call it, than what an FE further compromised version of a Galaxy will resemble. And, and, and I don't think that there's a solution for Samsung until they go back to making differentiating devices. You cannot differentiate a Galaxy from an iPhone if you try to make the Galaxy more like an iPhone. It's not a thing. But highlight what makes a Samsung unique. Give us more commercials about things like decks. Give us, give us features that iPhones genuinely can't compete with. And you'll get back to some of that mindshare of people who appreciated Samsung. Back when I was the crazy Samsung night. I mean, look, I still have my Note 4 in arm's reach. I have a table full of phones that I desperately need to do longer term content on and make videos and write articles about. And yet, without fail, one of the phones that I almost always have within arm's distance is a Galaxy Note 4. <laughs> this phone is still regularly used in the production of my videos. So it's not that I want Samsung to fail. Our, our boats are tied to Samsung if we're Android fans. And Samsung is not being competitive. <laughs> we need them to be competitive if we want other premium Android phones to be taken seriously. Bray Gray, but can a Pixel 7 be bespoke, one? Can it be bespoke? <laughs> Oh, it's so bad. I love it. I hate it. I hate it. I shouldn't say I love it. I hate it. I absolutely hate it. So those are the leaks and rumors coming out for the Galaxy S23. I am I am negative interested in Unpacked this year. Um, I, I will hopefully be surprised. I'd love to be surprised. I desperately want Samsung to, to, to surprise me because they have not in years. And the last time I felt really good and healthy about good premium Android phone competition was like really mixing it up with Samsung Knights, like LG G8 versus Galaxy S10e. Like that was such a fun year. And look at how much we've lost since that year, how little experimentation we've seen since that year. It was 2019. Snapdragon 855, monster performer. That is still gross overkill for most 
average consumer daily smartphone needs. That 855 was an incredible balance of performance and power management. Our first tastes of 5G radio connectivity. LG had quad DAC, memory card. LG G8 was, uh, had secure face unlock and fingerprint sensors and was messing with like alternative air gestures with Z, Z cameras on the front of their phones. We got our first tastes of 4K 60 frame per second video software stabilized. We could add storage to our phones because they were shooting much higher quality video than in years past. We had all of these features. We, we, we were getting faster charging, wireless charging. Um, I believe, was it 2019 was the first year we got reverse wireless charging? We had competition for desktop modes. We still had Huawei sort of in the mix with that desktop mode. We had DeX. We had Screen Plus take its first steps into being a much better compute interface beyond just the Android desktop mode. We had all of this stuff that made our phones compute platforms that could rival more expensive laptops and could we're starting to rival standalone cameras. And now I've got a more powerful chip in my phone, but I genuinely can't do as much with my phone as I could have back in 2019. If I really wanted to push the boundaries on what a phone could do, I think my LG V50 would still give most of the phones on my desk now a run for their money. That's not good for our industry. And it just further verifies Apple's business model. You want a phone and the phone does phone things. And then you need to pay more if you want to do tablet things. And then you need to pay more if you want to do laptop things. And I've got a phone over on that shelf over there that's now a little underpowered by today's premium tier standards, but can do a lot more than a current iPhone can do. You're telling me an iPad Pro with Stage Manager and an M2 processor that goes into their laptops can only run eight apps at a time. And I've got an LG V50 over here with Screen Plus and a Snapdragon 855 that can run as many apps as I can fit in RAM. There is no limit. <laughs> and it puts it out to a, an alternate display and it has a desktop-like user interface with proper windows that are managed just like on a Chromebook or on Windows 11 or on Linux. And that phone was a failure in 2019. We, we, we should be able to do more, <laughs> not less. Uh, it's so frustrating. Hold on, I got, I, I'm, I'm, my voice is like failing here. Let me get another drink of water and we can wrap up talking about another thing that's making me a little pissy. Hey, podcast listeners. I work really hard to find mutually beneficial ways to support production on my various distribution platforms. Instead of just running ads on this podcast and hoping they don't annoy you, I want to find products or services that you really will get something out of and that can help fund my production. While I do talk about some of those items in ads throughout this podcast, I've never created one easy-to-view master list of my current partnerships until now. Sorry, I couldn't help myself. If you'd like to help contribute, support production of this podcast and my various videos and reviews, head on over to somegadgetguy.com. At the top, there's going to be a link for support some gadget guy, and you can see what my current partnerships are. 
At the time this podcast was recorded, in addition to my Patreon, we can hook you up with a $10 voucher for shopping a new OnePlus, save 20% on some one more headphones, sign you up for Google Fi service, Amazon affiliate links, Audible, or you can grab a Mega Pickle coffee mug of your very own. Mmm, savory, delicious Mega Pickles. Head on over to SomeGadgetGuy.com, support banner on the top right-hand side of my website, and hopefully you find something cool, something you like, while also kicking me a little extra scratch. So, um, we, we also get to wrap up this podcast just with an ode to fun, funky phones that apparently are going to also get a little bit watered down in future iterations. Uh, I, I want to highlight this. This is a uh, an editorial written up by uh, Daniel Rubino over, uh, is it Rubino or Rubino? I completely locked up. I can't remember how to pronounce Daniel's last name. I need to go watch one of his videos now just to hear him introduce himself because I've completely spaced how to pronounce his last name. That's terrible. I'm real bad at this. I'm real bad at names. Um, Over at Windows Central, Surface Duo going to a single folding screen is lame, but the right call to make. The market has spoken and Microsoft is rightly pivoting to make its productivity Android phone a success. Um, Wait, oh. Why did my screen share way out there? Control Alt Clay is saying Bino, Rubino, Rubino, Rubino. Okay. I don't know why I wanted to say Rubino. Anyway, um, I, I'm a fan of the Surface Duo, um, Duo 1 and Duo 2. I have them both here on the shelf. Um, I think I just knocked over something that probably shouldn't have landed on the ground. These are my Surface Duos. Um, recently charged and utilized. They're some of my favorite Android tablets and they're passable phones. They recall experiments that I've, I've loved in the past. Things like um, the Asus transformers and pad phones and the, uh, the, some of the, uh, the fun that we had with um, uh, like Motorola docks, Atrix style. And, and so changing what we think a pocketable, but, you know, sort of more productive, uh, productivity focused device can achieve. And when we talk about real world use and multitasking and the ability to, uh, to accomplish more, man, people are just ringing the doorbell at my house today. I personally have appreciated and preferred a dual display design, um, dual display, comes, in my opinion, dual display comes with better real world durability for the actual screen that you interact with. And it can be used in more novel ways, like the dual display cases for um, phones like the LGs. When you make a dual display case, which I know I have to have one over here somewhere. Ah, okay. So I was, I was just referencing this. I mean, my V60 is actually kind of buried over there on the side, but there's the V60, there's the velvet, and then this is the V50 dual display case. And so it's asymmetrical and you have one thin panel and then you have the rest of the phone. You can kind of prop up the screen. You can flex mode or whatever it is that other companies are calling bending one part of the screen. But this has a higher resolution 
on a larger surface area, and overall, a phone in a dual display case is thinner in your pocket than a naked Galaxy Z Fold. And if you want to protect your Z Fold, you have to add quite a bit more bulk <laughs> to that Z Fold. All of the ways that we've been making these, these current iterations of folding phones have not appealed to me. The thing I love about the Duos is getting that like ridiculously thin iPad-like panel that folded in half, this phone is, or excuse me, this tablet is about as thick as like a modern premium thick kind of a smartphone with a big camera bulge on it. I'm going to be really upset that the duos aren't continuing with uh, this kind of dual display setup. Um, Microsoft got us really interested in sort of a split screen multitasking. And I think one of the things that kind of slowed us down was that sort of hot and cold Microsoft effect. We've seen it so many times before, and we really shouldn't be too surprised that this also happened with the duos, but they rush out and they show us something kind of radical. There's the Surface Duo, the Surface Neo. We're taking a tablet and we're putting a hinge and two screens and we're, we're making something extreme. You pick up a Duo, and this is an extreme piece of hardware. It is unlike anything else you've ever held. It is thinner and lighter and, and sort of it feels more precisely machined than like a Galaxy Z Fold. And this Galaxy Z Fold is a champ. The hinge on the Z Fold is great. Not really felt anything like a Duo until you've played with one of these wraparound hinges. It feels like that clockwork machining on the most expensive Lenovo's. And then Microsoft slow plays parts of it and then waters down parts of it and then kind of walks away from things. And now three years on, instead of getting a Duo 3 dual display, we'll probably get a Duo or a Surface of some kind with a foldy plastic screen. And this is Again, it's, it's kind of irritating and galling because one of the major exciting announcements from Lenovo at CES wasn't another bendy screened laptop. It was a dual display laptop. So Lenovo is giving us the dual display Neo type product that um, uh, Microsoft could not deliver. And I desperately, desperately wanted Th this this form factor, this duo experiment, but running Windows on ARM. And now we're not going to get that. And and I, I feel like that's that's the last part of this, the, the missed opportunity, the thing that really could have could have made sort of a, a Microsoft pocketable, a Microsoft folding tablet, um, something that really is a surface first and foremost, but can also um, replicate some of that um, phone experience. I feel like there's a market for that. And I think it's okay to say that it's a niche market. And I think it's okay to say that not a ton of people would really engage with that as, as sort of a mainstream option, but that there's a practical use for a smaller number of consumers who would love it. I look at like, how do you outfit sort of a mobile workforce? And there's a good argument to say, why not a mini tablet that can also take phone calls? I, I think I would probably be a bit deeper into the Apple ecosystem if instead of having to need 
an iPhone and an iPad and all of the Apple accessories, if I could just take an iPad mini and use that as a phone and pair an Apple watch directly to an iPad mini and take phone calls on it, just like I would, I would take phone calls on an iPhone. You know, if I'm going to have my AirPods, does it matter as much? I'm not holding the iPad mini up to my face, but it would be a better speakerphone solution. It would be a better um, sort of portable uh, entertainment solution. And when it's in like my backpack, I'm using my earbuds and my watch to handle most of that notification and phone call interactions. That's what the Duo was for me. It was a Microsoft Android flavor of putting an iPad mini in my pocket. And the drawbacks weren't severe because I'm the guy who's always walking around with earbuds and a smartwatch anyway, right? So, oh, it needs a front face screen, but it doesn't. It really doesn't. If if you're in that kind of tablet-like mind frame, that, that mindset, and you're using the appropriate pieces that all kind of combine with that, you're fine. So it, it's... It's, it's frustrating because we lose out on some of that variety and we're starting to act like just because Samsung made a fold that that's the right way to do it. If Microsoft jumps into this and their next version of a folding tablet is more a clone of the Z Fold, we lose a flavor of uniqueness and we use a, a, a base to experiment, uh, experiment from that will really drive better innovation in folding. What I'm hoping is that Microsoft is looking at companies like TCL and they're looking at all of the different form factors that have been delivered before, all of these prototype devices, all of these sort of skunk works. Like TCL had some folding phones, they never really brought them to market, but you could license the screen technology and the frame and the hinges, that dragon hinge from years past. You could make something really novel out of that that would not be just another Z Fold clone. I'm looking at what Oppo is doing, what Xiaomi are doing with their foldables, and they're distinctly different. I think they have better aspect ratios. I think they've got better screen real estate. They utilize space in a better way than what Samsung has done with the Z Fold. And the thing I loved about the Duo was having a broader sort of single screen. Why is this making, why am I not doing my fingerprint? Um, is having a broader screen real estate experience as the single screen use of this. It feels more like a business phone. It feels more like a BlackBerry with a stylus and having sort of this wider aspect ratio. I, if, if Microsoft gives us a folding screen, what I'm hoping is that we still maintain some of what makes this an interesting and unique device. Um, I believe Microsoft will still do something different. I saw someone else's comment here, and, and I'm sorry, I, 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 I can't backtrack to it uh, very quickly. But Sam is saying, uh, Shane, um, scary if little, literal, Shane Craig, has been doing tons of videos about duos and some of the recent software issues that have befallen people that are really trying to use duos as their main phones. Um, I don't think he's going to be hurting because I believe Sam, uh, Samsung has is, is already been popular on his channel. He's already done a ton of Fold coverage. But on top of that, I, I have to believe Microsoft will still deliver some kind of portable tablet 
communication device. <laughs> so uh, I don't think his channel is going to overly suffer. I think the mission of can you fit more screen in your pocket is still a viable mission for anyone's challenge. But I, I, I just, it makes me sad when we're so early into folding pocketable tablets and now we're already trying to define them by very narrow definitions based on one company that really hasn't broken open the market for more mainstream use. I don't believe foldable tablets are really gonna be a heavy hitting market segment until we also get mid-range solutions. Until we get some of these things falling well below like $800 at launch. Not the price cuts that you can always expect from a Samsung after launch, but really aiming at that targeted like mid-range chipset, 5G radio, good screen resolution, folding tablet. Can we get that to a more uh, uh, wallet-friendly uh, uh, launch price? So um, I I've been kind of all over the place on this one just because it's another example of like, this one makes me sad. I think another company could come in and do some really interesting stuff. Um, I look at a Sony. I have my SIM card in my Xperia 1 Mark IV still. And Sony has done some interesting things with displays and tablets and hinged devices in the past. They recently came out with accessories that augment the Xperia 1 Mark IV. You can get a little mini display if you want to use your phone as more of a vlogging setup. That's a hallmark feature of a dual display device. Multiple displays that help you change the orientation and the use of what you're doing. They came out with a little gaming controller cooling cradle so you can get even more performance out of your Xperia. I'm, an, I'm a bit anxious about that because it's so specifically built for one generation of phones. Um, but there's nothing to kind of prevent them from making a dual display case that would deliver some of these other usages and experiences and, and benefits. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm kind of dabbling with revisiting. Um, this is the Axon. It would be really cool if you had your Axon phone, which has an under-display camera. There is no cutout. There is no notch. There's no hole punch. It's all screen. This is like one of the prettiest phones of 2022, all display. How cool would it be to have two matched screens with no hole punch, minimal bezels, because apparently everybody hates bezels, and because it's already so, sort of so thin that wraparound screen case, like on an LG, would, would be thinner and more pocket manageable than a folding tablet phone. I, we're missing these opportunities to kind of bring some of this extra functionality and some of this extra use. And from companies that have done some crazy experiments in the past, ZTE gave us... Um, was the Nubia dual display. So the Nubia had a rear screen and a front screen. And so there was a smaller screen on the back of the phone that was a full feature, like you had every bit of access to every part of the phone. And then they also had the Axon M, which was a outward facing dual display hinged device. And it's a shame. It's a shame that we can't sort of acknowledge 
when we get those types of experiments and ooh, they're wacky and they're weird, but they're fun and they're still practical. Instead, we go, oh, but you know, you shouldn't buy them. They're not like regular phones. And then we only allow for one idea to be the winner idea. We lose out on all of the other experimentation and we lose out on all of the other progress that we would get from having a healthier marketplace of competition. So that was way too much rambling. I'm just real sad. I was really hoping that we would get one more version of a Surface Duo now that the Snapdragon 8 Gen 2 is out. So we went from the 855 to the 888, and I was hoping we would just skip all of the issues with the, uh, the 8 Gen 1 and go to the 8 Gen 2, but we're not gonna get, we're not gonna get anything like that. And it's, it's really a bummer. It, it really does make me sad. Oh, and McCorcoran, absolutely. Still regretting what the LG Explorer project could have been. An LG Wing 2 could have been cool, or they're scrollable. We, we haven't seen any progress on scrollable phones. Um, if we had been able to bring something like that to a limited market, we would have gotten the experience we needed to make that more viable. Maybe a scrolling phone makes more sense than a folding phone. It's, we can't know because that product never made it into anyone's hands. And, and that's where we lose. Maybe scrolling is going to be better than folding if it means that the phone isn't ridiculously two panel thick, but it just scrolls out you know, horizontally and gives you more real estate when you need it. We don't know. We don't know if that's actually a better fit for the market because we can't get one to play with it. So it, it, it just, it makes me, it makes me sad. Yeah. Uh, hopefully within the, this is from Jman with 50, hopefully within the next year or two from maybe Samsung or Vivo or Iku or maybe even Oppo. I, again, hoping and, and again, any company that is looking at the cost of trying to build a folding phone should also look at accessories instead. And I'm, I'm purposely pointing out Sony because they already have some of those accessories. But a dual display, a, a case, a, a cradle, other things that can deliver extended functionality maybe that's where you can take your market instead. But we, in the enthusiast side, we vilified dual display. You can't have one app that goes across both panels without a gap in the middle. All right. But that wasn't the point. <laughs> that's not why I liked the duo. Uh, so sad. Um, from Michael Peppertech, the scrollable expandable display is a new version of the LG Chocolate in a way, instead of a keyboard adding other functionality via screen increase. I mean, uh, that's also why I liked dual display, uh, you know, again, because I was such a huge fan of like slider keyboards. And now you could flip open one screen and use the whole second screen as a big landscape keyboard was so nice. And I know you can do things like that on a Z Fold, but... There's something about managing those panels and having that hard separation in a dual display kind of arrangement that I liked better for having glass displays and not plastic displays. <laughs> Ron Guido, that's not how you make a trillion dollars though. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Um, McCorcoran, maybe Lenovo will make a dual screen. They did just announce an enterprise version of the Think 
of the ThinkPad phone. I'll be curious to see what Lenovo does with phones. Um, Motorola is is kind of in a weird place. They gave Motorola a good nudge in 2022, and I don't think they saw the immediate return that they were hoping for. It, it's it's frustrating because it's like if you run hot and cold with consumers, like 2022, we we did the where is it? It's over here. Here's the my Moto Edge Plus 2022. Moto Edge Plus, and it's got Ready 4, and it's got a stylus, and look, it's the super powerful phone. It's one of the first to use the Snapdragon HN1. Push, 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 and then silence? Consumers can't stay on that bandwagon. You need like three years of regular conversation and marketing and being a part of consumers' lives. And I think Lenovo looked at that market and went, eh, they didn't sell out immediately, and then we had we sold a bunch of them on sale for like four ninety nine phones that legitimately should cost nine hundred dollars, and you lose you, you kind of lose that corporate momentum, and then consumers just like oh well yeah, but that was sort of a flash in the pan. I can go back to ignoring Motorola again. I don't know. I, I don't know what really changes that perspective, except for a company looking at the market and saying we're going to occupy this space and we're going to be here guaranteed for the next four years. And we're going to show you innovation and we're going to make these devices expensive. And then at some point they still need to be able to generate profits from that. And I I don't, I don't know what in the smartphone industry is going to win because right now, you know, getting consumers back on board is difficult enough. Getting enthusiasts on board is almost impossible. Um, it's just a really, really claustrophobic market right now. Um, from Sam, I think I'll still get a Duo 3, but that decision is a bit less solid with the Z Fold 5 and Pixel Fold in the same space. And I got to play like a TK came, we, I, I got to hang out with TK over the weekend and just holding like the 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 new find uh, find n, like yeah, I like this better than a Z Fold, and it feels nicer than a Z Fold, but I still like the Duo panels and hinge better. And you're like, it's progress. It, it's another step in the right direction that would get me to kind of reconsider my stance on folding screens and on folding phones. But like for Sam's point, you know, if if I'm leaning on Android, maybe a Pixel Fold makes more sense. Um, Microsoft deserves a ton of credit for bringing this kind of innovation to Android and getting Android more tablet friendly again. But at some point I also say like, well, the Google flavor of this is probably going to be a bit more consistent. I don't know. We'll have to see. Yeah, McCorkran, this, this conversation is is really depressing. Uh, we, we should probably start wrapping this podcast up. Um, I have fun stuff coming out. Uh, I've got a, a little video on um, uh, podcasting, uh, using your phone to produce podcasts. I've been doing a lot of chatter on like video editing and stuff like that, but also my first love was recording audio and spoken word. And I, I, I host a podcast that sometimes my mics work through the whole podcast and sometimes they don't work through the whole podcast. So, um, that's going to be a a video out soon on the channel. I am looking at how to make my Optimus prime dance better. 
So I'm hoping I can figure that out and get a little video shot on that. I'm gonna be finishing up my long-term uh, test drive on the Surface Pro 9. I'm gonna have some cranky replies to unimaginative geeks that don't seem to like Windows on ARM. So that'll be, that'll be kind of fun. Um, I've got a lot of stuff that's kind of in the queue. And I've got a couple things under embargo that I can't talk about quite yet that I think will also be fun for folks to check out. So um, stay tuned. Tons and tons and tons of tech is, is firing up for the beginning of 2023. And my big, uh, my, my, my big change or my big focus I really want to be talking more about experiential use. I really want to focus a bit more on what the product is sort of designed to do and then making shorter form content about that focus. You know, I I don't I'm not particularly excited about a new gaming phone coming out and then I have to produce like 20 minutes of review to then say things like, oh, well, you know, the cameras are kind of mediocre. And like, yeah, we know. I really want to focus more on like, hey, I played a bunch of games. Let's talk about what that was like playing games on a gaming phone. I'm really hoping we see that Vivo X90 Pro Plus get a wider international release. And instead of doing like, these are how many megapixels. And then I used the phone to do phone things. And this is what it was like playing a game on it. Instead, maybe I just need to shoot a short film and talk about what it was like to produce a piece of media from the Vivo X90 Pro Plus um, and, and do more sort of production diary stuff and video diary stuff and things like that. So that's, that's the attempt. I'm putting that, that out there publicly. And you know, I also kind of hope that people will hold me to that. But I'm, I'm considering more what is, what is it that we're trying to accomplish by being entertained by tech videos? And right now, I'm kind of not. So what are the kinds of content and videos that I would like to see? And maybe that's more the direction that I need to, I need to travel. So, um, but um, yeah, that's, that's a very complicated conversation that will play out over the entire year. In the next week, some fun stuff is coming your way <laughs> instead of this deeply, personally philosophical. Um, <laughs> let me let me use this as like a cheap free psychology session, which is great. Um, <laughs> get that out of the way there. So, folks, uh, let's go ahead and wrap this up. Uh, Simon says, "If no, any word on getting the X90 Pro Plus? Um, I have work ahead of me that I'm focused on that." I have not been able to make it financially financially reasonable for me to go and buy an X90 Pro Plus and then really be able to cover it to how much it would cost to buy that phone. And that's killing me. Um, but the same thing kind of happened to me with the Xiaomi. Xiaomi 12S Ultra, I spent $1,200 on that phone. And... I feel I got $1,200 of use out of turning it into a portable production camera. That Xiaomi 12, 12S Ultra has been used on almost all of my outdoor B-roll and photography, and I never really did a whole bunch of coverage on the Xiaomi. I used it, and I feel like that was, that was solid. I feel the Vivo 
is going to fall into a similar trap where I'm going to yet again buy another $1,200 phone that's going to show up on the channel twice. And I've got other things that I need to cover. So I'm going to get that phone and it's immediately, immediately going to be put to work. You're not going to hear about it. And I'm being very careful with the budget for how I buy review gear and not just continuously accruing more production pieces. I, I bought a whole bunch of production equipment over 2022 with the intention that I would use it and make content about it, but then I never made content about it. So I only got half of what I was wanting out of it. This is all really complicated stuff. So um, folks, I want you all to have an incredible week. I want you to have an amazing week with your tech. I want you to do awesome, be awesome with your technology and, uh, be on the lookout for not only my stuff, but also TK Bay, all of the crew, like easy computer solutions, Barry Johnson, gadget goddess, Italks tech, LaShawn. Um, I'm missing people in there. I'm sure, um, TK Bay and Michael pepper tech and, uh, Shane Craig and, all of the crew of people that are really doing the work to consistently test and review these products and talk about using these products, they all need your help. They all need more attention. They all need more sharing. They all need more participation, things that bump up the algorithm, things that bring new audience to their videos. Uh, this is going to be an interesting year, and I think it's going to be a challenging year for a lot of creators, but I also think this is going to be a year that we share with you what it's really like to kind of keep plugging away at making this content. And it's gonna be a choice up to the audience. If you want cool tech videos, participating with those creators is gonna make the difference. And in 2023, I would not be surprised to see some of our brethren fall off that regular flow of, pro of production because people love to just sort of passively consume, but then they aren't able to grow. Um, uh, Jeff, El Jefe Reviews. I almost forgot Jeff was in the chat too. Again, first first uh, resource for earbud and uh, headphone reviews. Should have them on the list. So anyway, um, thanks so much everybody for tuning in. I will catch you back here next week for another episode of the Monday Morning Tech Chat Show. Take care of yourselves so that you can keep taking care of others around you. We'll catch you back. Be safe. Be well. I love you all. Take care. Recording voiceover, spoken word, is truly one of my favorite activities. My second favorite hobby is photography. Now, the smartphone might be making us deaf, but we can't deny the awesome power of the phone as a platform for photography and multimedia creation. If you've been looking to improve your mobile photog skills, if you want to produce more professional content, or you're just looking to take your family photos to the next level, I wrote a book to help you out with that. Take Better Photos, Smartphone Photography for Noobs is available on Amazon Kindle. Walking through the basic terminology of photography, covering the settings on your camera, discussing composition and inspiration, and I even include a long list of exercises and challenges to really hone your skills, all with some helpful example photos and diagrams. Search for Take Better Photos, Smartphone Photography for Noobs on Amazon, or use the quick link bit.ly slash betterphotosbook to grab your copy today. Okay.